What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management. Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Brian Crombie Radio Hour on Saga 960. You know, lots of us are wondering what's happening with uh, our oil and gas uh, business, our energy business, uh, um, Alberta, et cetera. And so I read an interesting um, article, column in the Financial Post recently, uh, written by a gentleman by the name of Peter Terzakian, who's the deputy director of ARC Energy Research Institute, and he's the founder of Energy File. And an author, podcaster, and public speaker who's got a far better microphone, as you'll see in a minute, than I do. Uh, and uh, <laughs> I wanted to uh, check in with them and find out, you know, what's going on in uh, in the energy sector. And I think we're going to talk about a couple of different issues. We're going to talk about the impact of, uh, of Alberta's energy sector because of COVID-19, because of uh, new and, and, and uh, rising oil prices, because they've been low historically, but uh, they now look like they're going up. Um, Ottawa's emissions goal. Uh, rising Canadian dollar and the impact on exports and investments, inflation, and, uh, you know, what's going to happen after the, the pandemic. So, Mr. Uh, Tezekian, thank you so much for joining us. How are you, sir? Very well, thanks. My pleasure. So maybe uh, just to start off with, tell us a little bit about what ARC is, if you could. Sure. ARC Financial has been around for over three decades. We're investors in Canada's energy sector, invested in all sorts of energy disciplines, from uh, oil, gas, renewables, clean tech, uh, broad spectrum, being located in Calgary. Obviously, we have uh, significant exposure to oil and gas. Yep. Uh, but, uh, you know, because we've been in business for 30 decades, we're now shifting more to the whole clean tech space. And investing in people energy are. companies or in uh, commodities or in the wells or what? Companies. Companies. So uh, investing in stocks, equities. Private. Private, private, not public. Private, not public. Oh, okay. Excellent. Yeah. yeah. And um, what's your background? Do you, uh, you know, have been involved, I understand, for over 30 years in the energy sector? Yeah. I started out uh, working in the field in oil and gas exploration, uh, in the very technical side of the business, then moved into the office and developed uh, software algorithms for figuring out how to map where the oil and gas is, so very technical. But uh, I left the business in 1990 and went into the technology space back when the internet was emerging and uh, biotech was just emerging. It was a very fascinating period and was actually exposed to the financial world. So I finally made the switch back then into the financial industry, services industry as an analyst. Covering technology, but of course, being located where I am in Calgary, couldn't help but come back to the world of energy, uh, not only oil and gas, but uh, even the alternative energy, as it was called back in the late 1990s. And uh, so a broad spectrum of financial technical expertise, have a real bent for understanding how society evolves its sources and uses of energy. And um, yeah. 
it's uh, been a, a very exciting time, but none as exciting as it is now. And, and why is that? Uh, because of uh, COVID or because of uh, rising oil prices? Why? No, rising oil prices we've seen many times before and falling as well. <laughs> uh, COVID certainly haven't seen in my lifetime, but that's uh, just another, I would call, external factor that is serving as a disruptor of the whole live, work, and play paradigm, which ultimately affects energy. But it's a time like no other because also for the first time uh, in certainly a century and a half since the migration to oil and gas that we are seeing viable alternatives to that whole paradigm. Really? So alternative energy, we must be one of the only people in, uh, in the oil patch that's interested in things other than oil. I would not say that's true. That may have been true uh, half a dozen years ago up to, but uh, no, there's a lot of people now that uh, are actually shifting strategies and mindsets and things in and around the oil patch. Um, you know, Alberta and uh, is very entre entrepreneurial place. Uh, it's got the benefit of having uh, pretty much every natural resource you can imagine from forestry, agriculture, oil, gas, wind, sun. And so if you look at the history of our province, we have a tendency to um, migrate to where the opportunities are. Sometimes it's, uh, we're a little more resistant as is human nature, but I would say certainly in the last couple of years, and in fact, in many ways, catalyzed by the pandemic and other factors, including the climate change imperative, we are seeing um, big structural shifts again in our economy here. So what do you think the, the big opportunities are then? Well, the opportunities are to diversify into uh, decarbonized sources of energy. The opportunities are to decarbonize the legacy energy systems that we have. Um, talking for a minute about oil and gas, I mean, we've spent the last 120 years here extracting oil and gas. We'll continue to do so, uh, but in far different ways, far more efficiently. But we now have a price on carbon that's going to accelerate. We are seeing carbon markets establish. Carbon becomes a commodity. And we have expertise, the industry does, in understanding not only how to extract it, uh, chemically engineer it into other products. So taking carbon out of streams, whether it comes from cement plants, steel plants, the atmosphere, wherever, and putting it back in the ground, is just a natural extension of what we can do. So that's, you know, what's happening in the oil and gas industry is, uh, it is the business of carbon, it always has been, but now that business of carbon is being changed and we are adapting to it. But beyond that, I mean, as I said, you know, we've got deregulated electricity markets. We've got a renewable energy rush happening here in terms of some of the biggest solar farms that are being uh, built. We have plenty of wind, I can tell you firsthand. And uh, so, you know, it's, as I said, you just, uh, we are one of the very few jurisdictions in the world, I would say Canada as a whole, where we have the privilege of virtually every natural resource you can imagine. And therefore, as uh, imperatives change, economies change, priorities change, we can adapt to it. You know, this is interesting because I guess um, I was myopic in thinking that, uh, that Alberta 
wasn't seeing uh, this kind of a future uh, of alternative energy and was uh, trying to uh, live in the past. And so it's very encouraging to me, your attitude. Um, we're going to explore it a lot more with Peter in just a minute. We're going to take a break for some messages and come back more and, uh, and, and go through some of these different alternative energy opportunities. Stay with us. Stream us live at saga960am.ca. Welcome back to the Brian Crombie Radio Hour, Saga 960. We're chatting tonight with uh, a gentleman that knows a ton about uh, what's going on in the Alberta energy sector. Um, his, uh, his company is called ARC, uh, Energy Research Institute. Um, and uh, his name is Peter Tzakian, is that correct? You're the Deputy Director yep. of ARC Energy Research Institute and the energy, sorry, the founder of, I love this, Energy File. Is that correct? That's correct. Energy file. So someone that loves energy, tell me about that. Yeah, well, energy file, P-H-I-L-E is aficionado of energy. I'm a big student of history, energy history. And, uh, you know, 25 years ago, I started looking and collecting objects from the past that were related to energy, old antique light bulbs, lamps, you name it, and articles, and found that uh, there was a lot to learn from some of the past energy transitions and started using that material in my work. I wrote a couple books, now I've written three books. And uh, if you go to energyfile.org, you'll be able to see my personal museum and collection of these artifacts, which I use in my presentations as a way of uh, highlighting to people that this is a movie we've seen before, that while there is a lot of anxiety out there in terms of having to change the way we live, work, play, and the energy systems that support that, that this sort of thing is not new and that uh, business and society has adapted to these sorts of things. Not saying it's easy, but uh, there is a roadmap to being able to do it. And, and what was the last? Was it from uh, something to electricity, coal to electricity? The last big energy transition would have been post oil price shocks of the 1970s. It would have been largely late 70s uh, into the 80s with the shift from oil and coal, coal powered uh, coal-fired power plants to nuclear power. Uh, there was a substantial shift in the way we were supplied our energy in many countries around the world, a varying degree depending upon the countries. Uh, there was also uh, a lot of efficiency uh, policies and other types of policies put into place in the 19, late 70s, early 80s that uh, endured. And then there was sort of a calm period where things didn't change a lot. And now all of a sudden, um, starting around 10 years ago, it started to change, accelerating. Uh, certainly in the last two, three years, it's been really dramatic. With alternative energy? Yeah. Yeah. So Renewables, solar was, wind in particular. I think it was early uh, 2000, I read a book, um, I think that was called uh, The Hydrogen Future. Yeah. Jeremy Rifkin, I think it was at the time. Yeah. yeah. Um, what do you think of that? Is, is hydrogen an opportunity that you're interested in at all? I think hydrogen is a big opportunity and guess what? We have that too. I mean, hydrocarbons, uh, carbon, we talk about a lot. Hydro is hydrogen. And so we have uh, a lot of hydrogen still in our oil fields, in our natural gas fields. So being able to pull it out of the ground without carbon emissions is a big focus. Being able to generate uh, or separate hydrogen from water, H2O, using means such as solar 
or other renewable energy is also a big push right now. And uh, being able to do things initially anyway, blending in it with our natural gas stream to reduce carbon intensities in our stoves, if you use a, a gas stove or gas furnace. These are all part of the sort of the multi-decade type of changes that we're going to see. So seeing sound like you're most interested in solar and wind. Um, you know, the criticisms of solar is the sun doesn't always shine and the wind is mm -hmm. the wind doesn't always blow. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, we were going to talk a little bit about Texas. Uh, we may or may not want to, but one of the criticisms that even the governor, I think, of Texas yeah. had at the time of the big uh, uh, issue, when was that? About a year ago, was that um, that uh, a lot of the wind turbines that they were reliant yeah. on froze up and yeah. uh, didn't work. Um, so tell me, you know, how can we count on solar and wind? What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation? where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission. At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Well, we can't. Uh, you know, I like solar and wind from uh, the standpoint that it is a demonstration of how technology can reduce costs over a very short period of time in the span of a decade. I mean, solar and wind costs, especially solar, have fallen dramatically. But, you know, I like uh, in, in a similar vein what's happened to LED light bulbs, which are six times as efficient compared to a decade ago. Uh, we've got batteries, which have dramatically come down in cost and the mating of energy storage with solar and wind is an up and coming uh, technology set that I think is gonna be disruptive, already is in some instances. So, you know, it's, this is the thing is we're in a, we're in a period where we're, uh, everything is quite fluid. You know, there's all sorts of solutions out there. There isn't gonna be any one solution that is going to lead us to the utopia of having clean, uh, secure, affordable energy all at once. Right? Uh, you know, there's, there's going to have to be a multitude of solution sets in terms of how we get it and how we use our energy and put it to work for the benefit of society. I interviewed uh, Vice President, uh, one of the top people in Canada for General Motors, and he said that uh, General Motors had an objective, I think he said by 2030, to be 100% electric. Mm -hmm. um, and then I met uh, and interviewed a, a gentleman that uh, was head of, uh, of all the alternative energy for Total. And, uh, and he said that the, the Total, that I understand is an oil and gas company and has been for quite a long time, um, was going to become completely um, alternative energy within the next 25 years. Mm. Are those platitudes or do you think those things are really going to happen? I think by 2030, you're going to see definitely a dominant fraction of vehicles sold by the automakers being electric. You know, what that fraction is, is open to debate. I, I, I would think uh, 
60, 70% is, is very possible. Um, but how will people buy them and use them? Yeah, I'm going to give you the analogy of um, stoves. Oh, you know, the, the stove, the big stove in your range, then came microwave ovens. That's an alternative, right? Did you throw your stove out? No. You know, we've got a, a situation where people will have probably electric vehicles and gasoline powered vehicles for quite some time going into the future. Will the blend of that eventually change and there'll be a shift? Uh, I believe so. So by 2030, you know, the technology is gonna be fairly established in things like vehicles where we're gonna see, uh, we're, we're gonna see big changes. Now, does that mean that we're gonna solve our emissions problems? Uh, uh, rapidly, the answer to that is no, because merely selling electric vehicles is only one half of the thing. It's taking the combustion vehicles out of the fleet, right? That's the other half of the problem, because once you build a vehicle, it has a tendency to linger, much like an old stove in the wall. But it's also, uh, how do you produce the electricity? And are you producing the electricity in yeah. a manner that does not create more carbon yeah. emissions, right? Absolutely. I mean, everything has to happen synchronously for us to achieve the types of goals that we want to achieve. And um, there's a lot of things that have to happen in concert. For, so I'm not uh, sure about uh, Calgary, uh, but uh, you know, I saw this one prediction of Toronto and it was uh, um, you know, number one with uh, transit, go transit, uh, um, wanting to convert from, uh, from diesel to electric and uh, their plans over the course of the next decade to convert to electric. And then number two, what people were uh, projecting uh, for um, electric cars and charging stations, they said that we'd have to triple our electric generating capacity. Does that make any sense? Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> you try and push a car. Like, in Ontario, we've been, as you've pointed out, become increasingly reliant on nuclear, but we're not building any more nuclear. Yeah. How do you triple your electrical generating capacity, particularly if you're going to do it in a hopefully more clean or completely clean manner? Yeah, it's challenging. Or you have to be more efficient in the way that you use the electrical capacity that, that's uh, generating the electricity that, you, that you're using and uh, be more strategic about in terms of how you use it and balance your use by you know, charging at two in the morning instead of five o'clock in the afternoon when you come home from work where you flip the dryer and the oven on at the same time. Like, you know, there's a sort of load balancing and that's where the whole discipline of smart grids and load what they call electrical load or consumption balancing comes in. So, you know, there's a lot I'm not debating the amount of electricity that is needed to drive an expanded fleet of electric vehicles. I mean, you know, electric vehicles, a vehicle is heavy, try pushing one, right? uh, especially try pushing it uphill. It gives you a sense of how much energy it takes. So you need a pretty strong battery to be able to do that. And the electricity has to come from somewhere. So what's the solution? Is it massive amounts of solar? Is it massive amounts of wind? Is it well, I'm a believer it's, it's all of the above. I mean, we need, we need nuclear. It's a small modular reactors. The new next generation of and nuclear capability, um, I think, is going to be required for the base load. I think um, existing power plants that are based off, say, natural gas, likely going to have to have carbon capture if we want to reduce the emissions off of that and maintain a base load until things are built out. 
I think uh, rooftop solar has uh, a lot of potential, not just building uh, out in the arable land. And yeah, so it's all of the above. I, you know, I'm not sitting here representing that any of this is easy. <laughs> I said, we've got a massive scale problem. We're talking about repiping, rewiring, rejigging the entire energy economy. And it's a big job. Now, you talked about the last uh, sort of energy conversion being uh, oil price shocks in the 70s. We didn't have to go through this kind of a change at that time. When was the last time we had to actually change everything? The last time we changed everything was probably the move from or, or near everything was from wood to coal back in the 1700s. And then there was another episode from coal to oil, but that wasn't a full shift. And we still buy wood and we still buy coal. So... Yes, if you're asking me, are these transitions uh, difficult? Absolutely, they are. Do they take a long time? Yes, they do. Can we accelerate it if we are clever and mindful? Yes. Um, is it going to be cheap? No. Is it going to take a lot of buy-in from the public and corporate uh, Canada? Absolutely. So how do we how do we go about doing this? Just step well, by step. We need a big well, strategic vision. Yeah, I mean, I th yeah, step by step, thinking it through. We have to uh, have uh, mindful policies that encourage investment because you know the big, the big issue is who's going to pay for it all. And we're not talking about billions. We're probably talking trillions here, certainly at a global scale, but even in a Canadian scale, you know, bearing in mind that uh, we have spent the last 120 years building up a certain paradigm of the way our energy systems are distributed. And it's different in every single province based on circumstance. Uh, so yeah, it's gonna take a lot of holistic thinking and coordination to do it properly. I interviewed uh, someone responsible for uh, city planning relative to autonomous vehicles in Toronto. And uh, it may not be a, a perfect analogy, but um, this gentleman was saying, think about the conversion of, uh, of horses to cars. And that was the green solution at the time because horses were leaving little remains mm -hmm. behind on the road. Um, and we switched to cars, which was the green solution. Um, but it changed our landscape um, because uh, we went from uh, uh, couch, uh, co coach houses um, that were detached from homes to garages that were attached to homes um, and uh, dramatically changed our, our, our cityscape. Um, the, uh, the whole road system changed because we could travel at a far higher uh, speed and uh, that created highways and suburbs and and uh, exurbs etc. Um, and um, and and uh, you know gas stations and uh, and everything else associated with the cars. And this gentleman was saying, think about it. If we go electric and electric and autonomous and autonomous, then our whole urban fabric will change. We won't need garages. We won't need parking lots. We will have big drop-off areas. Um, we're going to have, um, you know, power stations all over the place. What do you think of that? Well, again, okay, there's broached a number of subjects here. Uh, let's tackle a couple of them. I'm a little bit skeptical of the whole autonomous thing. I mean, we can't even synchronize our traffic lights. <laughs> like, you know, uh, yeah, I think there's going to be some autonomous. I think it, it, it works well on freeways and highways uh, within cities Yes, there's experimentation going on, but I think there's a lot to overcome to do it, uh, to do that. And uh, it does beg 
I don't think this debate is settled between, say, public transport versus autonomous fleets. I mean, if if you buy into that, then why are we building public transit, right? If if everybody's going to be picked up by a self-driven electric vehicle, then if that's the future you're portraying, what do we need uh, trains and such for anyway yeah. anymore, right? Right. So every, you know, I think every laneway of a highway effectively becomes a train. Exactly. Exactly. And the technology is there to, you know, space the cars out back to back as if it was a train. You can do that today. So, uh, but we don't have it today because there's a whole bunch of other things that are standing in the way, including regulations and safety, blah, blah, blah. Um, Going back to the horses versus cars, um, to me, that that, 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 uh, analogy as it applies to electric cars versus combustion cars is not applicable. The Model T was a compellingly better alternative to horses. Everything from speed to horsepower to range, and even it was cost parity. And electric is not compelling. Well, electric, I've driven one for five years. I think it's a superior vehicle, no question. Absolutely no question. It's a superior drive, satisfying. Uh, However, the contrast in utility, I'll call it, between an electric vehicle and a combustion engine vehicle of this, you know, two sedans, a Model 3 Tesla, and say, uh, equivalents, combustion sedan. The contrast is nowhere near what horse and buggy versus Model T is. So this was what leads me to my earlier comment that you're likely to see adoption of electric vehicles much as so I like to use the example again of microwave ovens. Like you're going to kind of have one of each for a while until it's really compellingly better because electric vehicles are not cheaper than combustion vehicles yet. And given that we have inflation, which is I think one of the things that Warren, your list you're talking about in terms of, uh, for example, battery materials and things. Uh, in the last month, Tesla's already in- increased the price of its vehicles, citing with lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Supply chain, which is really code for hey, the batteries are costing a lot more because uh, constituent materials are costing more. So, you know, there's a number, a lot of variables here and a lot of uh, things that we have to consider uh, as we go forward with this. There's no question things are changing. I believe Alberta, Canada as a whole is very well situated to be able, because of uh, our abundance of resources, our infrastructure, our, our highly skilled people and so on. But, you know, there's a lot of challenges to achieving what we want to achieve. We're chatting with, uh... Peter, um, Peter, I forget. How do I pronounce your last name? I apologize. Sakian. 
Tzakian, Peter Tzakian, um, who is an energy expert um, based in Alberta, based in Calgary. We're going to take a break for some messages and come back more with Peter Tzakian in just a minute. And uh, I'm going to ask him about ammonia, about hydrogen, about batteries, um, about wind, about solar. Stay with us. No radio? No problem. Stream us live on saga960am.ca. Welcome back to the Brian Crombie Radio Hour. We're chatting tonight about energy and alternative energy primarily, but uh, with an expert uh, from the energy field, Peter Tzakian, who is uh, head of an organization uh, called ARC in, uh, in, uh, in Alberta and, uh, and runs a, uh, an interesting uh, website um, that's all about uh, his love and affinity for energy called Energy File. Um, and, uh, and what's that website? It's energyfile.org. Energyphile.org, and, and, and uh, you've got a whole bunch of uh, artifacts about energy yeah. and and podcasts and yeah, it's on my own. It's my personal museum, if you will, but uh, it's more than a museum. It's I like to think of it as a part of a library. There's um, the books I've written and the stories, as well as um, all sorts of um, lessons, lessons that people can take away from the past and hopefully apply to the present and the future in terms of how we think about our energy future. Tell us about your, uh, you said three, three books? Yeah. What are the names? First book was a thousand barrels a session. Uh, <laughs> first book was a thousand barrels a second, which was the rate of consumption of oil uh, published in 2006. And that was really a story about how the whole oil paradigm has to change, which was really quite prophetic at the time, bearing in mind it was 2006. I followed that up by saying the way we consume energy has to change. That was 2009, a book called The End of Energy Obesity. In other words, that we have a lot of um, weight to lose in terms, of, uh, uh, in terms of the inefficiencies of the way we consume energy. And then the latest book is really a collection of my short stories, uh, which are meant to be entertaining and short and easy to read. 10 short stories. It's in a collection called The Investor Visit, which you can find on Amazon or on my energyfile.org website. Awesome. Congratulations mm-hmm. for that. That sounds interesting. Yeah. Um, let me ask you about uh, some of these uh, issues in, in terms of climate change. Um, and. Yeah. Uh, you know, climate change has been an issue. Um, I think your premier has been against uh, carbon taxes uh, historically, and we got the sort of uh, the impression in Eastern Canada that he may in fact be a climate change denier uh, almost. Um, and uh, my sister uh, used to be the assistant deputy minister of energy in, in Ottawa and, uh, and um, or the environment actually. And, uh, and she said that this uh, bringing uh, the increase in, uh, in temperature down to two degrees Celsius wasn't enough. We had to get to zero, and uh, and and really believed that uh, that uh, some of the projections for uh, the negative impact to our climate and to our economy, that uh, some of the most uh, you know strident uh, <clears throat> climate mm-hmm. scientists have been were right, and uh, and she uh, you know really got me scared um, about the future. What do you mm-hmm. think? What do you think about that? Well, I think pumping anything into the atmosphere that's not natural is not a good thing. So uh, there's all sorts of modeling and thousands of scientists working on it. I think we have to pay heed to it. I do. And 
I believe that reducing emissions as quickly as possible is the imperative. And that is key. We need to be thinking about how to reduce emissions as fast as possible. What do you say to people like uh, your premier that is either a climate change denier or maybe is a climate change denier? Well, I'll come to that. But I think the, well, a piece of inf uh, an important thing to think about is that the imperative, as I said, is to reduce emissions. The imperative is not necessarily to put industries out of business. So the it, there's sort of a, there's more than a subtle distinction between reducing emissions as fast as possible and trying to put an entire industry out of business. I would offer to you the latter is much harder to do. And the more people talk about putting the oil and gas industry out of business, the more people's backs get up who are employed or have vested interests in that business. So it's not a good strategy on many dimensions to say, let's put this business out of business uh, because you just create resistance. If you say the imperative, which is the imperative to reduce emissions as fast as possible is the goal, then uh, I believe the oil industry and other industries, including steel and fertilizers and other emissions, uh, 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 cement and so on and so forth, aviation, um, then they'll play along, right? So I think you have to understand, uh, I'm not gonna speak for the premier, but I can tell you, I understand where the sentiments come from because you have uh, tens of thousands of workers who are employed in this province that he represents in constituencies that over the past 10 years have, uh, wake up in the morning and read headlines about how they are evil and they're destroying the planet and they need to be put out of business and so on and so forth. It doesn't feel very good. And so what do you think the reaction is gonna be? Uh, it's not gonna be one of, yeah, I agree, I'm evil and uh, I should be put out of business. It's just human resistance. Uh, and you know this is this is unfortunately problematic because uh, it's created a lot of negative sentiment, and it affects the whole country because investors from outside this country hear and see this kind of thing going on. So why would I invest money in Canada if everybody's yelling and screaming at each other? So let's get back to sticking to the objective, which is to reduce emissions, and that is something that the industry knows how to do very well has actually really uh, turned the corner in terms of um, being solutions oriented. 70% of the oil sands segment of the oil and gas industry has already committed to net zero. I don't know of any other industry in Canada where 70% of the participants have agreed to it. Do you? I don't. So, you know, let's, uh, I, I think that, there's a lot of sort of human psychology and nature associated with the sentiments that the premier represents. And we have to be sensitive to that. And as we think about going net zero going forward, I would argue to you, you know, based on our prior conversation here, the obstacles to achieving rapid decarbonization are not technological. You know, there's really? a lot of focus on tech. It's all social. It's all how you treat people. It's all how you create collaboration and consensus and how we work together as a team. Because if we don't get that, we're not getting there. Well, that's interesting. Let me explain that. So you say it's not technological. We've got the technological solutions to going sure. to net zero. Sure. It's social. Explain that. 
Well, it's, it's social all the way from convincing somebody to uh, make their next appliance or vehicle pur uh, purchase, uh, one that is uh, low, lower emissions. It's being mindful about how you do things as simple as turning the lights out, frankly. Uh, that's social. Um, and then social from a corporate perspective, because at the end of the day, people run corporations. So, you know, it boils down to individual psychology of um, how you collaborate such that corporations and institutions and government all collaborate together to achieve a common goal. But if you're shifting the goalposts and saying, no, the objective is to put industries out of business, put people out of work, uh, and don't worry, we'll find, we'll find a job for that 50-year-old. Uh, you know, he can become a software developer or something like that. Uh, you know, this sort of arrogance leads us to uh, a, a lot of resistance. Right. So, you know, there's a, there's a lot of work to be done. Honestly, Brian, there's a lot of work to be done on stuff that has to, that, that has a real meaningful um, impact. Now, what are the ways that, uh, you know, government and economists think of uh, shifting that social attitude is uh, through the price mechanism of a carbon mm. tax. You're an economist. What do you think of carbon taxes? I think if you want to get rid of carbon, you got to make it a commodity and put a price on it. So, uh, yeah, I, I have no problem with a carbon tax. Uh, I think that it has to be, though, understood how it affects, um, again, the psychology of people if the carbon tax is interpreted as a punitive mechanism that affects their wallet and they don't understand it then they're going to be resistant to it oil prices have come down dramatically over the course of the last couple of years and now starting to maybe go back up mm. um, what caused the the big decline such that you know i think the the word was at one point in time oil was actually selling at a negative amount um, and what's causing the increase today and where do you think it's going to go yeah we traded negative for a day or two in the day i think it was last was it april as a consequence of the pandemic but it it, it hung around 20 dollars for quite a while and um now it's uh, marched all the way up there's a number of reasons for that there's uh, reasons that relate to divestment and directives in the free market Western world oil companies where they are, uh, you mentioned them, whether it's uh, uh, Total, man, many of the uh, uh, multinationals, BP, others are now talking about uh, basically not growing their production. Investors are basically giving that directive, make money, don't grow your production and, uh, and start thinking about what you're gonna do in the future. And that's fine. Um, up to a certain point. So restrict supply means yep. that uh, prices yeah. go up. So if you restrict supply, price goes up. But one has to realize that only 20% of the world's oil is in free market hands, dominantly in the United States and Canada. Right. So if you restrict supply in the United States and Canada, uh, the, our friends on the other side of the world, who are not really friends, uh, basically rub their hands and say, fine, I'll supply you with the oil. And so we have uh, the Russians and others who are basically um, uh, in a very, uh, what do you call it, um, advantageous situation right now because they're going to pick up the market share if we don't stop consuming. 
So again, you know, the, the, the focus over the course of the last decade has been on beating up on oil companies and trying to restrict the supply. But if demand doesn't come down, I can tell you that the countries on the other side of the world will be more than happy to take it and get more market power. The price of oil is likely to go up, but only to a certain point, because at the end of the day, the price of oil is controlled by two countries, Saudi Arabia and Russia. And if they see it going too high, uh, to the point where people will want to switch, they'll just add a little bit more. Uh, they've wisened up to that, uh, but they're not going to let it fall either. And you know the, the interesting thing about the last half dozen years, actually the last decade, is that both Canada and the United States figured out ways of bringing oil to the ground much cheaper to compete with them. Um, but the divestment movement and others have basically said, no, don't do that. Um, you guys need to flatten your production and or decline your production and say, okay, uh, we'll do that. One of the but, reasons why supplies got up so much, I believe, is fracking. Is that yeah. not correct? And what do you think of fracking? Well, I think fracking is, uh, is nothing new. I mean, fracking was called torpedoing 150 years ago. Like, you know, you just used to throw dynamite down the hole and it exploded and uh, it's basically got the oil flowing. So people tend to, tend to think this stuff's new. It's not, right? They just make an issue out of it uh, to a certain point. And so uh, without passing judgment on good, bad, or indifferent, I think the bigger issue here is that we are not off oil in, I'll call it the West. We are nowhere near as off oil. And that we should not delude ourselves into thinking that we are uh, in control of the oil markets and increasingly we're going to be ceding the power of the oil markets to countries on the other side of the world which is an energy security issue which is really a replay of a movie that we saw in the 1970s so you know stay tuned i don't uh, you know it's the, there's so many variables right now but uh, if you're asking me where the bias of oil prices is it's upward and it's not in our control we lost control probably about a year ago. Uh, we had control, in, and when I say we, I say you know the United States and Canada with its ability to bring supply on just in time with fracking. Uh, we've kind of figured that over over the last decade, but uh, because we're not growing anymore, we don't. Uh, we have all sorts of restrictions. Others are going to be dictating the oil markets from here on forth. I had the president of a company by the name of Hydrofuel on my show, and he said that the solution for the oil sands and the oil and gas business in uh, Alberta was to convert um, uh, oil and gas, bitumen, petroleum, whatever, to ammonia at uh, source, um, put the carbon back in the ground um, and uh, ship uh, in uh, natural gas pipelines ammonia, which number one would take away the risk of uh, any kind of, uh, of contamination with leak because you don't get contaminated and, uh, and it doesn't contain any carbon. And then uh, the uh, ammonia can be burnt either in a car or in a power plant, um, just like natural gas would be, and uh, you create mm -hmm. energy. Um, is ammonia a potential solution? It's a partial solution for certain applications. I don't think it's a mass market solution. I, I, well, I, it's not a mass market solution, in my opinion. I mean, if, if you think building an oil pipeline is hard, try getting somebody to agree to have an ammonia running under their feet. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty toxic stuff. And uh, I think there would be uh, a lot of issues with that. Um, but I do think it has 
interesting applications in like heavy marine engines, uh, big, big industrial facilities and so on, where um, it's not in this sort of the mass market retail market. You said solar has come down uh, a lot. Yeah, it's like 98%, right? I mean, it's just like, I'm humbled at 95%, I don't know, since- Come down by 95%. Yeah, I mean, the cost of manufacturing a solar panel a dozen years ago, I don't, if it was a hundred bucks uh, today, it's probably more like five bucks. Like it's, it's, it's really come down in costs. And, and where's it gonna go? Is it continue to go down? Is it like Moore's law? It's not like Moore's law, but it's there's still improvements to be made, improvements to be made in the efficiencies. It's to the point now where putting solar panels on your roof actually makes uh, quite a bit of sense. And I think you're gonna see more of that. So we're all gonna be uh, creating our own power um, on top of our roofs. Uh, some of it, I think there's still gonna need the grid dependency, uh, but increasingly, I think you're gonna see more of it. And the government of Canada is encouraging that with its recent announcement with, uh, $5,000 grant if you get the energy audit done and uh, potential for $40,000 interest-free loans to do it. Now, wind has not come down uh, anywhere like that. Is that correct? Not as much, but it's come down pretty dramatically too, especially if you think about uh, the, the energy it produces from the very large scale wind turbines, the offshore ones. Yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty, pretty competitive. We had uh, in Ontario, um, I can't remember the number, but it was like something like 800 or $850 million uh, write-off of, uh, of um, feed-in tariff subsidies that uh, the previous Liberal government had put in place as an inducement to wind and solar that uh, Doug Ford, our current premier, got rid of because um, um, he thought that it was wrong. Was it right to create this incentive when it was expensive and uneconomic so that we would could create this uh, this uh, reducing profit uh, supply, uh, supply curve? Well, I don't know how to answer that. I mean, the Germans did it. A lot of European countries did it. Ontario did it. Uh, some states in the US did it. And that was what was necessary to create the scale and ramp up the commercial viability of solar and drop the costs. Uh, there's no question that as a consequence of Ontario and all the other names that I mentioned, jurisdictions that I mentioned, um, allowed uh, places like Alberta now to be able to install very much cheaper wind and solar power. So we needed it. It was uneconomic, but it created the situation that we've got today, the positive situation. So thanks very much. Yeah. <laughs> Peter Zizakian, who is the deputy director of ARC Energy Research Institute and the founder of Energy File. Um, has been sharing with us uh, his thoughts about what's going to happen uh, in the energy sector um, in, uh, in Alberta and Canada and the world. We're going to take a break and come back with some concluding comments in just a minute. Stay with us. Stream us live at saga960am.ca. Welcome back to the Brian Crombie Radio Hour, second and 60. I've been having, a, I think, a fascinating conversation with Peter Tzakian, who is the deputy director of ARC Energy Research Institute and the founder of Energy File. He's got a website uh, called energyfile.org that's got uh, a whole bunch of his artifacts and information and podcasts and other stuff uh, available. He's written three books, um, and he's shared with us a lot of interesting information in regards to what's gone on with um, 
with oil, with gas, with uh, wind, with solar, um, likes hydrogen, doesn't like ammonia as much as I do. Uh, so it's been an interesting, uh, interesting conversation. Um, he likes carbon taxes, uh, but thinks that uh, we um, shouldn't be putting businesses out of business and companies and, and employees out of work. And so we need to find a better way to uh, position what we're doing in regards to carbon taxes and uh, shifting people off of, of oil and gas, not to make uh, uh, people feel vulnerable, uh, which I think is uh, what you need to ensure whenever you go through an economic uh, transition. Uh, Peter, what do you think about our government? How have we been doing? What should we be doing? And what's the future for Canada and energy? Well, I'll work backwards. I mean, I think the future for Canada and energy is very bright. I'm, I'm always like to be a positive, optimistic person, but I truly am quite bullish about our situation. By the way, Brian, I mean, you didn't mention nuclear energy, which we also are leaders in. We also have uh, the big, some biggest uranium, biggest uranium mines in the world in Saskatchewan. We've got agriculture, we've got forestry, like you name it. I mean, we are in such a privileged position. You layer on top of that the infrastructure that we've built up over the uh, uh, even the last century, the intellectual talents and worker talents that we have, skilled labor and telecommunications. I mean, we've got it all in this country. I think sometimes we forget how privileged we really are with everything that we have. And so our government at the federal level and in conjunction was trying to get some sense of uh, communal, more con congenial communal relationships with the provinces is just mandatory because you know I, 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 we just have it all we've got to put it together and i think i know i have friends from outside the country sort of look in at us and say wow you know get it together you've got everything can't be said for most countries in the world uh, you know and you layer on top of that uh, democracy and uh, heightened sensitivity to social justice issues and, and all that sort of stuff. And boy, this is a privileged place to live. No wonder, I think we were recently named number one in the world by, was it The Economist or some, some agency? Um, let's, let's celebrate that and, uh, and take advantage of it in a positive way. And I think we can be leaders in the world of energy and beyond. So you know, am, I, am I optimistic? Will we, will we get through it? I, I am actually. But uh, I hope we can do it faster. Peter Tzakian, Deputy Director of ARC Energy Research Institute and the founder of Energy File. Thank you so much for joining us tonight and giving us a review of what's happening in the energy sector, um, but also a very positive viewpoint on uh, Canada and uh, all the natural resources we have and all the, the social resources we have. And then we've got to do a better job working together to take Absolutely. advantage of all and build a, a better future for us all. Great, thank you very much, Brian. Pleasure That's to be with you. That's my show for tonight. Thanks for joining us. Uh, I come to you every Monday through Friday at uh, six o'clock on 960 AM, or you can stream me online at www.saga960am.ca. All my podcasts and video casts are available on my website, briancrombie.com, on YouTube, on uh, Apple Podcasts, on Audible, on Speakeasy, wherever you get your uh, fun uh, podcast to download. Peter Tazakian, thanks so much for joining us. Good night, everybody. No radio? No problem. Stream us live on saga960am.ca. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry. 
Sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.